Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, July 14th, 2019. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. My family moved to the big island of Hawaii when I was... Uh, just starting my sophomore year of high school. I had grown up mostly in Arizona. My father became the chief park naturalist at Hawaii Volcanoes National Park on the Big Island, and uh, his job necessitated that we live within five minutes of the visitor center uh, because whenever there was an emergency, he had to be there, one of the first ones on the scene. So we actually lived in the national park housing And it was amazing. I would come home from school every day and just go walking the trails. This is what I saw in my backyard when I lived there my sophomore year of high school. It was amazing. In fact, this is overlooking Kilauea Iki Trail, which was my uh, all-time favorite trail to hike. It started in the rainforest and then went down on the caldera floor across the lava and then back up through the rainforest to my house. Well, I soon found out that uh, the biggest sporting event every year in Volcano was the Kilauea Wilderness Marathon and Rim Runs. Uh, The annual event, which was held in July, began in 1983, just one month before we moved there. So I didn't jump on board that, that first year. But it ran for 26 years before coming to an end in 2009. And during its tenure, many came to say that it was, bar none, the single most difficult marathon in the world. That you could run, partly because of the altitude, 4,000 feet up, and partly because of the terrain uh, pounding on the lava lava rock. Uh, But they also had a uh, a 10 mile and a a 5 mile, though when I started it was a 10 mile and a 5K. And let me confess, I have never been much of a runner. In fact, if you have to list, I love sports, if you have to list all of the things for exercise I would do, at the very bottom would be running. I mean, I'll run on a basketball court, a tennis court, we'll play football, whatever. But don't, I don't want to just run in the neighborhood for no purpose. Well, I mean, like training and all, but you know what I'm saying, right? Uh, but since everyone who lived in and around and worked around the park was involved in this event, I thought, well, you know, when in Rome, right? I'll sign up and be a part of that, of the rim run. So the summer between my sophomore and junior years of high school, I signed up for the 5K run. Now, You couldn't really say that I did a whole lot of serious training, Um, but every couple of days I'd come home from school and I would go back on the trails. You know, I'd run some on the trails and walk some, but I I did that on a regular basis knowing that I was going to be competing. But for the most part, I I was signed up for the race just to have fun, right? I wasn't trying to beat any record or anything. And and, and I did about as well as I thought I would do based on the limited amount of training that I did. I think I, I don't remember my exact time. It was probably like 45 minutes or something like that. But I had a good time. I finished with, uh, with a, a fair amount of energy left. I wasn't dead tired. Well, the following year, uh, as race day approached, I decided, you know what? Pfft, 5K. That's, I'm going to graduate to the 10-miler. Uh, and so um, 5K race was pretty much in the rainforest. The 10-miler was mostly out along the lava fields. Looking back, I made three big mistakes. The first, the first mistake that I made was actually signing up, right, for the race. <laughs> yes. I blame it on being a guy, right? Guys are like, we're going to the race. You want to go, heck yeah, I'll be that. Like, we, we don't have to have anything, any experience. We'll just, like, do it for the challenge. Uh, 
And, and, and then we, when we do something, we're like, well, what's next? Like bigger and better kind of mentality. Second mistake, I failed to take into account my uh, level of athleticism. Or shall I say, I was a bit overconfident in my athleticism, right? I, I was playing on the varsity basketball team. I, was, I thought I was in pretty good shape. So I figured, you know, I don't really got to do much training. I can just go and wing it when I get there. Uh, in addition, though, that year, uh, my parents had moved out of park housing, um, still within five minutes of the park, but now we lived in Volcano Village, which is just right down the road from the Volcano National Park. So I didn't have all those great uh, trails to walk on, and I don't want to just run on the street, so I pretty much didn't train at all uh, before this race. Um, uh, and, and then my third mistake was uh, math. Really, and I have to blame it on my lack of understanding the uh, metric system because I figured, hey, I did a 5K, 10 mile, eh, it's just about twice as long, right? No. Anybody know metrics? It's like three times as long, 10 miles uh, from 5K. So needless to say, I will spare you the gory details of my one and only 10 mile run that I've ever done in my entire life, but it was less than stellar. I mean, it was more like a 10-mile walk and a little bit of jogging. Um, and if you, if you tracked me, uh, literally, I, I probably walked more than I ran for the whole race. And I realized, dang, it's so much harder running over lava fields than it is in the rainforest. And the other people that signed up for the 10-mile run, they're like real runners. They like were training and everything. They're like passing me, and I think one lapped me or something. I don't know. I realized very soon that I was so out of my element. And I learned a painful but important lesson, that there's a difference between training for something and trying to do something, right? I tried to run a 10-mile race, but I did not come even close to training for it. So welcome to the uh, first of a two-part mini-series that I'm doing called Soaring, Giving Our Soul Wings to Soar. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said to his disciples, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to look at uh, what it means to live into that abundant life, right? It's more than just showing up on Sunday mornings. How can we move from simply getting by to actually feeling like our spirits are soaring? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a 20th century German pastor. He was a theologian and an anti-Nazi dissident. And, and he has a, one of the classic books of Christianity called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that, he wrote this. Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. Meaning we can't just decide to become a Christian uh, without actually having a program for drawing closer to Jesus. It would be like deciding to go to college... But, you know, I'm not going to sign up for any classes. I'm going to hang out in the dining hall and, you know, maybe go to some of the parties they have. Oh, definitely go to the football games. But that's about it, right? That doesn't make you a college student. You actually have to, like, take classes and work towards a degree. Well, the same is true in working on our relationship with Jesus. John Ortberg, in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, puts it so succinctly when he writes this. The single most helpful principle regarding spiritual transformation is this. There is an immense difference between training to do something and trying to do something. He said it was Dallas Willard's book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, that first uh, uh, made him aware of this concept. And he said it was earth-shattering for him. Because prior to that, whenever he would hear or whenever he would preach a sermon, 
uh, about following Jesus. It was always in terms of, you know, we just need to try harder to be like Jesus. But then he would preach, say, a Sunday sermon on patience, and he'd wake up on Monday, you know, I'm going to be more patient today. And it, it's great uh, when you start your day, and then you deal with your three-year-old as they're, you know, growing, and you realize, uh, you know, this trying to have patience doesn't work as well. And he would end up exhausted and defeated and discouraged. Because when it comes to trying hard, that's not always enough. And especially when it takes spiritual transformation. Spiritual transformation comes not so much in trying harder, but in training wisely. Much of the time when it comes to uh, living the Christian life, we, we try to rely on willpower and determination, right? We're just going to, we're going to try to do better. But willpower only takes us so far in life. In fact, uh, there was a psychologist, Roy uh, Baumeister, that had these wonderful experiments on the nature and limits of willpower. And, and one quick key question that he wanted to know was, let's say once you exercise your willpower, let, let's say just trying to resist temptation for five minutes, does that uh, make your willpower stronger or, or, or weaker or about the same in, in the next few minutes following? So he had certain uh, uh, subjects exert willpower by resisting the temptation to eat a plate full of warm, gooey, fresh chocolate chip cookies. And, and, and next to it, a plate of radishes. So, so resist the temptation for the cookies. Instead, eat as many of the radishes as you like, right? And then another set, he didn't give them the radishes or the cookies at all. And after a certain amount of time, he then gave them uh, complex math problems to work on. And and truth be told, they were actually impossible to solve, but they didn't know that, right? So they spent time working on the math project and and wanted to see how the uh, exercise of willpower uh, helped them persevere or not persevere. Well, the people that had to resist the chocolate chip cookies gave up on the math problems a lot sooner than those that hadn't had the cookies and radishes. And it played over and over again, test after test, group after group, so much so that Baumeister determined that our willpower actually gets fatigued. Our willpower gets fatigued over time. So we can use our wills uh, to override habits for a few moments, but really it's the habits that we uh, have throughout our life that beats willpower over the long run. Now, our will is good at making big, simple choices, right? Who should we marry? Should we take this job? Should we maybe start a a recovery program if we're dealing with alcoholism? Whatever it may be. But our will is very bad at trying to overcome habits or attitudes that we have had uh, become entrenched in our lifestyle over time. So deep change takes more than willpower. It requires God's transformation. Thomas Akempis was a 14th century German Dutch author, and he once said this, Old habits are hard to break, and no one is easily weaned from his own opinions. But if you rely on your own reasoning and ability rather than on the virtue of submission to Jesus Christ, you will but seldom and slowly attain wisdom. For God wills that we become perfectly obedient to himself and that we transcend mere reason on the wings of burning love for him. That, that desire to draw, to draw close and be more like Jesus. The Apostle Paul gives us gets to the heart of this truth in our scripture reading from this morning, from uh, 1 Corinthians. He writes this, 
Do you not know that in a race, the runners all compete, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win it. Athletes exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air, but I punish my body and enslave it so that after proclaiming it to others, I myself should not be disqualified. Over the course of his writings, Paul uses athletic imageries uh, often in his, in his books. Held every two years, Corinth was the site of the Ismayan Games. The Ismayan Games were second only to the Olympics in their prominence in ancient Greece. And, and scholars believe that Paul himself was probably uh, there at the, ni- or the uh, I was going to say 1951, the 51 AD uh, Ismayan Games. Uh, and, and one uh, researcher, Gordon Fee, thinks that Paul may have even set up a shop making tents. He, that was his side job, a tent maker, that he would have made tents and sold them to people who were coming to watch the games there in Corinth. Well, if you're going to participate in the Ismayan games, you had to be at least 10 months prior in a strict training regimen. If you failed to do this, you would be disqualified from the competition because you weren't up to the level that was required of excellence. That's why Paul probably drew this comparison to his own spiritual life, saying that after I proclaim the gospel to others, I want to make sure that I'm living it out the way I'm telling you to live it out. Otherwise, you're going to look at me and say, why would I even pay attention? Just disqualify him from any kind of credibility because he's not what someone said during the children's time, Jack, I guess, practicing what we preach, right? Our son Ezra played soccer uh, from the time he was five years old uh, through college. In fact, I texted him today to say, hey, Ezra, I'm going to be talking about your your soccer years. Hope you have a great Sabbath. And he's like, "Uh, not going to church today, Dad, going to play soccer. I'm like, all right, just remember Jesus, you know, whatever. Uh, He played uh, four years of varsity high school, uh, soccer. He played seven years of club soccer, and his club team one year even won a national championship. He headed off to Montreat College in Western North Carolina as a freshman, and it's really hard to get a college soccer scholarship. They, they don't give that many out. Uh, but Ezra was able to get a combination of athletic and academic uh, scholarship to go to Montreat. Montreat is an NAIA school, which is different from NCAA Division I, II, or three. And his freshman year, uh, prior to him starting on the team, the team was ranked in the top 25 uh, preseason for NAIA. Well, Ezra received that summer, right after he graduated high school, a nine-page document uh, that was the conditioning program for the Montreat soccer team. The first five weeks, it was a strength conditioning program. The cycle included five days of activities followed by two days of rest. Each day had a 30 to 45 minute workout. And then during the next five weeks, it moved to a anaerobic conditioning program. That was a six-day cycle with one day of rest, again, 30 to 45 minutes a day. And the document came with a detailed outline of each day's activities, plus 42 photos on how to be doing these uh, activities the proper way. Coach Dasher, who was the head coach of Montreat at that time, uh, finished with the caveat specifically directed at Ezra. And it was in his own writing that he said this. Just remember these three things when it comes to this workout. One, do it excellently and Ezra will be a starter. 
Two, it's different from any workout that you have done, and other experts will probably question it. But three, you can skip it any day that Ezra has a a soccer game for his club team or a heavy training session. So Ezra was faced with this dilemma, right? His last year living in Hawaii full-time, his last summer of freedom, He could spend every day at the beach hanging out with his friends, soaking up the sun, and just show up at Montreat on August 5th and, you know, see how things go. Or he could follow his coach's plan for training, work hard, and come prepared to compete with the best on August 5th. Ezra chose the latter, uh, and after his freshman season, he was named second team all-conference for that area. Now, why am I telling you this? Not just to brag upon my son Ezra, though. Jody and I have been very proud of him, and especially his work ethic when it comes to to, uh, athletics over the course of his life. But following Jesus means we have to learn how to arrange our lives around activities that enable us to draw closer to him. It may not be, you know, nine pages with 42 pictures, but it's got to be more than just showing up on Sunday mornings. The traditional term for such activities are spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines require that we, some of them that we let go of certain things, like restraint, moderation, self-denial are often keys in these areas. Other spiritual disciplines challenge us to take on something new uh, as we seek to become more like Jesus. Acclaimed Russian author Leo Tolstoy once said, everybody thinks about changing humanity, but nobody thinks about changing themselves, right? So spiritual disciplines help us with that process. They help us do things that will, over time, change us and open us to God's transforming power that will go a lot farther than just our own willpower, In his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, John Ortberg lays down a wonderful groundwork for understanding the spiritual disciplines, things that we need to be aware of as we start this process. First, he says that spiritual disciplines are not a barometer of our spirituality. It it can't be said that if you do X, Y, and Z, then you'll officially be a spiritual person. Likewise, you can't say that, oh, if you do A, B, or C, then you're more spiritual than the person that isn't doing that. It's not a checklist of, here's what every Christian should do. No, the true indicator of your spiritual life is, are you growing in your love of God and your love for others? That's how you know if you're growing. Are you falling deeper in love with God, and are you expressing that more by how you love others? Now, if you're able to grow in your love of God and love of others without doing any spiritual disciplines, then God bless you, do it. But I can't. And I imagine for most of us, we need things, activities, practices to help us learn and train and grow in those areas. Second, spiritual disciplines are not necessarily unpleasant. I mean, I think many of us kind of like vegetables, right? We get the idea that uh, they're a list of things that uh, if it's going to count as something spiritual, it's going to have to be something that we really struggle with. That's what makes a good deal. We we really kind of, we don't like it, but we do it because we have to. No, remember, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly, right? These are things that will help us live into the joy, the the celebration, the peace, uh, the the affirmation that comes with a life with Christ. So uh, some of these may be actually fun. You may enjoy them. 
And, and, and there's a wonderful uh, area of spiritual disciplines that help you with celebration. Being able to celebrate can be a spiritual discipline. To experience the joy that God gives in life, in relationships, in food, whatever it may be. And third, spiritual disciplines are not a way of earning favor with God. They're not uh, opportunities to earn divine brownie points to get God to love us more or bless us more. They're not uh, designed to prove to God how worthy we are for God's love and grace. Spiritual disciplines are for us. They're not for God. Their value lies in their ability to help us change into who and what God created us to be. Besides, God already loves us as much as God can possibly love us. It's called unconditional love. And nothing we say or do will get God to love us any more or any less than God already does. Now, how many spiritual disciplines are there to choose from? The sky's the limit. As many as you can think of can be a spiritual discipline. Almost any activity we can turn into a training exercise to become more like Jesus. Which also means there's no one size fits all. You must read your Bible this number of minutes. You must pray this number of minutes. No, for each of us it may be different. Depending on how God made us and wired us and the ways that we connect to God. Some, for us it may be being out in nature. Or using music. Or practicing silence, or spending time in prayer, or looking at great pieces of art. Uh, the list is endless. And, and where we are in life will also affect the disciplines that we use. Uh, when our children were very young, Jody and I uh, found that most nights, once we got the kids fed, bathed, and in bed, we were exhausted. And by 8 o'clock, we were zonked out, oftentimes in the bed with our kids as we were laying them down. As they grew up, junior high, high school, sometimes we didn't get home until 8 p.m. We had dinner out 8.30, and we were up till, you know, 10 or 11. It changes on our season. Well, I remember in, in our early years, Jody used to lament the fact that after coming home from a long day of work and getting the kids bathed after dinner, that she had no time to read her Bible anymore or do some of the traditional spiritual disciplines. And I happened to be uh, going to a spiritual director at that time. Uh, she was a Catholic nun by the name of Sister Catherine. And I was telling her about this and the conversations that Jody and ha- I had had and how Jody was being, feeling frustrated about this. And she said something that changed everything. Sister Catherine said that the time that Jody spent bathing our children and feeding them and tucking them into bed, that was holy time. That the love that she was lavishing on them at this season in their life, that was a spiritual discipline. That was helping her grow closer to God by the way she loved her children. John Ortberg reminds us, a disciplined person is someone who can do the right thing at the right time, in the right way, with the right spirit. Yeah. Do the right thing at the right time, in the right way, and this often is the hardest part, right? With the right spirit. Disciplined people can do what is called for at any given moment. That's why there's only a few that excel in sports, right? If we look at basketball, my favorite sport, Michael Jordan, um, Kobe, Kobe Bryant, they seem to know how to perform at the right moment, at the right time, uh, in the right way, with the right spirit. And that's why they won so many championships for their respective teams. So what is it that we need to do. We need to go and find what are the disciplines 
that will help us? Where are the areas that we're lacking that we can draw closer to Jesus? What's keeping us from growing in our faith? And when we identify these barriers, then we'll be able to better choose what kind of practices we can take on that will help us overcome them. Ortberg talks about a time in his own life when he realized he needed to be more loving. I mean, that's kind of at the core of all of Christianity, right? That's why we say at Palmdale UMC, we're inspired by Jesus to love. So loving, he says, requires to have large amounts of energy. And at this season in his life, he was realizing that he was really, really tired. And so if he was going to have the energy that was needed to be there for his congregation and those that he met, he needed to actually get more sleep. And he says, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time thinking and feeling like Jesus when I'm tired all the time. So did you know, brothers and sisters, that the Bible has a theology of sleep? That it's in the Bible. That sleep is a gift from God. Psalm 127.2 says this. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for God gives sleep to his beloved. That may be the most spiritual thing we hear all morning. (laughs) Take out your camera, get a screenshot of that, look at it over and over again, right? Or Matthew 11, 28, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you... Rest. Not more hours in the day to get things done. I will give you rest. At, our, at the appropriate time, uh, sleep becomes an act of trust. That at the appropriate time, we lay down, we close our eyes, and we stop doing all the things that we were doing before. When we sleep, we're reminded that the world actually runs in God's hands, not in ours. Psalm 4, verse 8 says, I will both lie down... And sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me lie down in safety. And then, whenever it is time to get up, our eyes will open. We'll receive the gift of wakefulness once again. And go on with doing what God has called us to do. But it could be that more than anything else, what some of us need most to draw closer to Jesus is actually get more sleep. So then we'll have the energy to be who God called us to be. One Last point, and we'll call it a morning. Through all of this, we have to remember that God is the one who's at work in spiritual disciplines, not us. Ortberg likens it to the difference between piloting a sailboat and a motorboat, right? You get in on a boat with a motor, motor, all you got to do is start it up, and you can take it wherever it needs to go. You fill the gas, start the engine, and then just steer, right? We are in control when we're driving a, piloting a motorboat. But things are different with the sailboat. We can hoist the sails and we can steer the rudder, but we're utterly dependent upon the wind. The wind is what actually moves the sailboat. And if the wind doesn't blow, and sometimes it doesn't blow, then we don't get very far. And our task is to try to find ways to catch the wind. And once we catch the wind, then we can move where we want to go. So the same is true with spiritual disciplines. We can try passionately and fervently to pursue spiritual transformation, but ultimately God is the one who is the wind beneath our wings. I I don't think that was Paul that said that. I think that was Bette Midler. But uh, the point still fits, right? God as the, uh, the Holy Spirit is the one that moves us. It's up to God to give us that growth. 
Our, our primary task is not to calculate how many verses of scriptures we need to read or how many minutes we spend in prayer or how many Bible studies we attend over the course of our lives. No, our task is to create opportunities to put the sail up so that the wind of God can blow us where we need to go. So, next week, we're going to wrap up this mini uh, two-week series on looking at nine different spiritual disciplines. And remember... There's way more than nine. These are just supposed to be opportunities to start to get some ideas, and then you can, uh, you know, use those to, to tail off into something that, that fits for your life. They'll reflect a variety of spiritual disciplines and practices that Christians over the centuries have had, and, and hopefully next week when you leave, you'll be excited about one or two or three things that you might be able to try to help get your sails up and to connect with the wind of God. In the meantime, may God give us that hunger to want to do more than just try, to want to train, to draw closer to him so that our walk with Jesus becomes more than simply showing up for 90 minutes on a Sunday morning. May we be excited and open to drawing closer to Christ Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.